the work of salvation by God is a miraculous work, and that is your story, and is an encouragement to the rest of us, and so it is nice to hear those things. Thank you again, Miles. Well, all of us, I think, can look back, if you've been a believer for a very long, look back at those who have impacted us uh, in the past. You know, one Baptist preacher said that we're kind of like little people sitting on the shoulders of giants, and sometimes I feel like that because I've had great mentors over the years, people who have brought me to this place uh, in spite of all the odds against that. If you remember that I was an agnostic and an atheist in college, and then back to agnosticism, and then uh, my wife was saved uh, at age 28, and a year later I was saved at age 28. Yes, she is a year older than me. I want to make that point. Yes, yes. I'm the, I'm the youthful guy here, so... But uh, after we were, became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, God graciously opened up an opportunity for us to go to a local church. And in, with the risk of embarrassing my major, one of my major mentors in life, uh, there was a young pastor there and his wife and their children. And he was the one who set us on firm foundations, mentored us, discipled us, and set us uh, on a path where you are the beneficiaries of anything that I am here today because of him and many others. But a uh, real surprise in my life today that Wes and Carolyn Hunter showed up. Uh, Wes and Carolyn, I'm going to have to have you stand. I don't want to embarrass you, but would you please stand so this church can see uh, who has impacted my life. Thank you. Uh, they're here, and it surprised me when they came in this morning, but what a blessing uh, to me. And uh, everyone here is forbidden to talk to them about stories they have about me <laughs> early on. Uh, so, but I'm so thankful that they're, they are here today, and uh, so thank you for being here. Uh, as you know, this morning uh, we were returning to the book of Ephesians. We've been going through a number of weeks to study through this wonderful letter of the book of Ephesians. Uh, in a book called The Divine Intruder, uh, James R. Edwards recounts this story from our nation's civil war. I don't know if you've ever heard of Wilmer McLean. Wilmer McLean. But Wilmer McLean was a small farmer in the Shenandoah Valley in 1861. In the spring of that year, two powerful armies met upon his property on his farm, the Union Army under General McDowell and the Confederate Army under General Beauregard. It ended up being the bloodiest war in American history. It began at Bull Run, a creek that ran through McLean's property. McLean was not at all sure what the armies were fighting for, but he was quite sure he did not want them on his property. And if he could not change the course of this war, at least he would not have to be a part of it. So McLean decided to sell out and go where the war would never find him. And so Wilmer McLean chose an obscure place in the whole country, or so he thought. He bought an old house and a farm in the village of Appomattox Courthouse, Virginia. Four years later, General Grant was pursuing General Lee through Virginia. In Appomattox County, Grant sent a message to Lee asking him to meet and sign a truce. The place where they had met to sign the peace that ended up ending the Civil War was Wilmer McLean's living room. And so it he could not flee it. Some things you just cannot get away from, can you? And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, there is the reality of this thing the Bible tells us is called spiritual warfare. 
And we have come to the point in uh, this letter to the church at Ephesus by the Apostle Paul where the language changes into warfare language. And uh, we cannot get away from it. And uh, we face that in our Christian lives. And actually, we've been studying through the book of Ephesians. We've recognized the first three chapters are all of our riches in Jesus Christ, what God has done for the believer in Christ. Remember, the book is addressed to saints, those set apart unto God for his purposes and his holiness. And God has empowered us and given us all of these blessings in chapters 1 through 3. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are very applicational instructions. It's the walk of the believer or how we live out our lives of faith. And the Holy Spirit is one who is given to us to empower us, to guide us, to influence our day-to-day decisions and to guide us in the truth and to teach us to be our comforter. And as the passage that Russ read for us this morning, it all keys off of verse 18 of chapter 5, where he commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is a work of God himself who does fill us with his Holy Spirit. And it's up to us to appropriate what God has blessed us with and to recognize that the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us for lives of godliness on a day-to-day basis, as the Apostle Peter has taught us. And so we come to this passage, and the language changes. Remember the Apostle Paul, if you've been with us, he has been talking about walking wisely and being submissive to one another, and he's addressed family issues, husbands and wives and children and parents, and then the work situation. In his day, it was slaves and masters. In our day, it's employees and employers, and we have looked at that. But then in verse 10, it changes again. But the power of the Holy Spirit is resident within every believer. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us in Corinthians, at the moment of salvation. And we rest in him and hopefully appropriate the power and the wisdom and the influence that he gives to us every day. But without the power of God released in and through our lives, we can be like Wilmer McLean trying to run from the day of battle trying to run from the things that come up against us. The odds are completely against us. When you think about Wilmer McLean, you know, two massive armies coming together, and they could have run over him and everything else around him. We feel the forces of evil bearing down upon us. In fact, in our culture and society, all you have to do is be a student of the news media to recognize that there's uh, good news doesn't sell, only bad news sells, and we are inundated with it 24-7. And it seems like evil is about to crush us. Christianity seems to be an eclipse in North America, and yet God is still at work. And we can't do a thing about the forces of evil coming to us. It's too big. It's too overpowering. It is too much for us, no matter what some of our Pentecostal brothers and sisters might say about that. But when you put your trust in the power of God, the power of his Holy Spirit who indwells your life, and when we ask him to take us and take us and influence us and take control of certain issues in our lives, he begins to help us pray, help us walk in the world with wisdom, help us to witness of our faith to a watching world, and he gives what we don't have in and of ourselves. That seems to be an ongoing lesson for each of us, that we think we're pretty sufficient until we face up something that is bigger than we can handle. You know, Ephesians, this little letter, is not a self-help book where you make resolutions and you enter into a new program or you try to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's not Paul's purpose. That's not God's purpose. This is a book about the greatest power in the universe, the one who loves you and wants to empower you in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so today, this morning, and as we go through this series, and no matter where you find yourself, the question remains, will it be theory for you as you set aside the Bible for the day or go into your work week and the busyness of the next few days, or will it be life changed beyond what you've ever experienced before? I need to remind you that every time we open the book, the Word of God, and we read the Word of God, whether it's at home in the quietness of our uh, house or, or uh, in our car or listening to the Word being read or on Sunday mornings as we come together or in life groups, wherever you find yourself, that you are opening a divine book that has no exhaustion. It amazes me when you think of the Bible, it's got a finite number of pages, a finite number of words, and yet it is in, infinite. It is infinite. You can spend more than a lifetime studying and learning about God's word. So when the Holy Spirit begins to influence your life, when you are recognizing that you need to be cognizant, you have to have your radio waves set to what God is teaching you, and the power of God will transform you. And you know what? You don't need to worry about getting a bill for it because Jesus has paid it all. He has paid it all. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. I pray for clarity of speech and the uh, opportunity here. Thank you for the privilege it is to teach your word. And Lord, for all of us, uh, really, uh, those of us who listen, it is a hard work to listen to a message. And Lord, give us attentiveness, give us understanding. And most of all, your Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us. And we are all fellow travelers and learners. And Lord, uh, we pray for your transformative presence and that you would transform us because of this encounter with you, with your word, and with one another. And we thank you today and pray in these minutes that we have uh, that you would just teach us today, for it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. If you are over uh, 50 years old, you obviously remember the Vietnam War, and uh, most of us of a certain age remember it very well, very divisive time in our country terrible time, but in 1967, Robert McNamara, who was the Secretary of Defense, uh, issued a statement from his office, and uh, these were his words, although we have redoubled our efforts, we have lost sight of our objective, unquote. Although we have redoubled our efforts, we have lost sight of our objective, and of course that war was to grind on for another five years yet, and, uh, but McNamara was a realist, and he saw that. You know, Satan has a very clear objective. In the Bible, uh, we know that fa Christians, we face three enemies, three enemies in the Bible, the world, the flesh, and the devil, according to Ephesians chapter 2, where we were before. The world there refers to a, a system around us that is opposed to God that caters to the lust of our flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, as John says in 1 John chapter 2. A simple definition would be a society apart from God. And we certainly see that around us today, a society apart from God. So that's the first enemy is this world system in which we live, function, and move. The other one is the flesh. It's the old nature that we inherited from Adam. And it's a nature that is opposed to God and can do nothing spiritual to please God. And again, I remind you that this flesh, this physical flesh we live in is not redeemed yet. And that's why we have these difficulties with the flesh. We have sinful desires, sinful thoughts, and sometimes those things are carried out, and it is because the flesh can become this enemy to us. 
And then uh, by his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ overcame the world, John 16, 33, Galatians 6, 14. He overcame the flesh in that sense in Romans 6, 1 through 6, and in Galatians 2, 20, and the devil in Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, which I will refer to later. In other words, uh, we as believers do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. And we are not the victors. The Spirit of God enables us by faith to appropriate Christ's victory for ourselves. Jesus Christ is the victor. And so we come back, and you noticed in this passage in chapter 6 of Ephesians that he tells us to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This is the third time the Apostle Paul is referred to Satan or the devil. The other ones occur in chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 27, and now here he's going to do an extended discussion not only of the enemy we face, the warfare language that he uses here is calling us to arms essentially, but then the elements or the armor that we are to clothe ourselves with. The danger, of course, is that uh, in our culture and society is that we tend to equate everything to Satan, everything we blame on Satan, or we totally ignore him. And uh, neither one is a very good stand to take because the Bible certainly doesn't take that stand at all. And uh, another uh, general, a Russian general, he was a Prussian general, uh, a military strategist, and he wrote a classic entitled On War, and his name is Karl von Clausewitz. He lived in 1780, the late 1700s. But he wrote these words. He said, no one starts a war or rather, no one in his uh, right senses ought to do so without first being clear in his mind what he intends to achieve by that war and how he intends to conduct it. Uh, and we've seen too many uh, negative results in our lifetime of people who have not taken his words to heart and uh, various wars have occurred without any good resolution. And so we have this enemy who has objectives, but God is also an objective God. He has plans and a purpose, and he is all-powerful. The other thing that we tend to buy into in evangelicalism, especially in more of a Pentecostal charismatic uh, theology, which we are not, uh, is to see a dualism in the universe, equal good, equal bad, of course, popularized in the Star Wars movie series about the good force and, and the evil force, and they're equal, and they're both fighting, and it's, it comes out of Near Eastern mysticism. And uh, sometimes Christians feel that way, too, that it's a Satan and God. They're equal in power and strength, and they're fighting for control of the whole universe of the, of the world. And so the enemy here, we need to find out what the enemy is. In, you know, in military uh, terminology, we also know that good intelligence usually leads to good victories, but poor intelligence uh, leads to bad things and mistakes and those kind of things. And so uh, in Ephesians 6 here and throughout really the entire Bible, God instructs us about the enemy of our souls. And there's no reason for us to be caught off guard. And I want to emphasize that today. Of course, devil, the Apostle Paul uses the word devil here in Ephesians chapter 6, the leader. He's called by many different names in Scripture. The devil means accuser because he accuses God's people day and night before the throne of God. You can read that in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. Satan means adversary because he is the enemy of God. And therefore, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are his enemy. I need to emphasize that. He's also called the tempter in Matthew 4, 3, and a murderer and a liar 
in John 8, 44. He is compared to a lion in 1 Peter 5, 8, a serpent in Genesis and Revelation, and an angel of light in 2 Corinthians, as well as the God of this age. Uh, many scholars, Bible scholars, believe, you know, where did Satan come from? And they teach that, and this is my position, that it was Lucifer, the archangel Lucifer, who was an angel of light, and he fell because of pride, the son of the morning on Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, and he was cast down because of his pride and his desire to occupy God's place in all things, wanted to take over God's place. He's a created being. He's not eternal, by the way, as God is. He's limited in his knowledge and activity. Unlike God, Satan is not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful, and he's not everywhere present. We need to take note of that. Uh, in our understanding of what he is. Uh, How does he accomplish so much in the world then? We seem to live in an evil world where Satan has freedom to do a lot. And uh, the answer, of course, is his organized helpers, which are the demonic forces, the angels who fell with Lucifer. Uh, They call themselves, Paul called them in this passage, principalities, powers, rulers, spiritual wickedness in high places. Charles Williams translated it this way, In chapter 6, verse 12, for our contest is not with human foes alone, but with the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark world, that is, the spirit forces of evil challenging us in the heavenly contest. Make no mistake, it is truly warfare. Now, we know the victory has been won because God is all-powerful. Jesus Christ has paid it all, but yet there is the ongoing warfare that we face in this world. A spiritual battle is going on in the sphere of the heavenlies, and you and I are part of the battle, whether you want to or not. You can't be like Wilmer McLean and move away and get away from it at all. Uh, Knowing this makes walking in victory vitally important to us as long as we're walking in God's victory and what Jesus Christ has done. And so we come to that today. And uh, also his abilities. Satan is a strong enemy. We do not want to underestimate his power and his strength. He has had thousands of years, if not tens of thousands of years, of experience. Uh, a professor that I had, <clears throat> Dr. Norman Geisler, he equated Satan's abilities with that of a magician or an illusionist is more correct. You know, we watch illusionists uh, in a show or on TV and they can make an elephant disappear or a person disappear and all sorts of things. They're illusions and uh, it, 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 you know, we know that, you know, ultimately it's not magic, but it's an illusion. And he equated Satan's abilities with the ability to do great illusions. And never under, underestimate the power of the devil. He is not compared to a lion and a dragon just for fun. Not at all. The book of Job tells us what power can do to a man's body, home, wealth, and friends. Jesus called Satan a thief who comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Not only is he strong, but he is subtle and wise, and we fight against the wiles of the devil. He is cunning, crafty, he has a strategy, and we cannot afford to be ignorant of his devices, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. Uh, You know, some people are like that, cunning, crafty, deceptive, and we need to be wise about that. But behind those people are the arch deceiver, Satan himself. He masquerades as an angel of light and seeks to blind men's minds to the truth of God's word. And that's what we are facing today. So as Paul introduces this in chapter, chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, we are going to notice that there are 
three realities that can change each one of our lives. Three realities to be spiritually attuned, not only to what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and what God is doing, but to the reality of warfare. Three realities that can change your life. First of all, the root of our strength, the root of our strength, the reality of our struggle, and thirdly, the resource for our stand. Now, oftentimes, I've heard this passage preached as an individual application. I think that is misguided. Uh, Yes, each of us is individuals, but we are part of something bigger, and it's called the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's been going since Acts chapter 2 in the first century, and it is still going. God is still doing his work, and we are part of the visible church now. And we are part of this larger body. And here is a local expression of the bride of Christ, of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I believe the Apostle Paul, as he's addressing the church, is addressing this as a corporate, collective example, exhortation, admonition, if you will, that we all recognize the spiritual warfare and and appropriate the root of our strength. Where does our strength come from? Where is this? In verse 10 of chapter 6, if you'd look there, in my translation, the first word is finally, finally. And that's kind of, well, it's literal accurate, but I think the better manuscripts use a little bit different word, which means henceforth or for the remaining time. It's not like we're coming to conclusion, but it is actually a call to arms for the rest of the time that we have in this life as Christians before we enter heaven. And so henceforth, or for the remaining time. And the root of our strength is detailed in verses 10 through 11. It comes from the might of the Lord. Look again at verse 10. Finally, and here's the command, the imperative, be strong, be strong. Uh, This is not, you know, gritting our teeth and uh, muscling up our arms and saying be strong. But notice where the strength comes from. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Notice these three emphases. Be strong in his strength and in his might. Keep on being strong. It's a present passive imperative verb. Imperative is a command. Passive is the fact that someone else is applying the action to the subject. You are the subject. God is giving you the strength. It's not something that you give to God. He is impressing upon you. The Apostle Paul uses this six times. God is always the source. He is always the source. And it is also in the plural form, which means all of us, all of us are called to be strong in the might of the Lord, his strength, his might, and we need to appropriate it. What is this God? How strong is this God? First Timothy in chapter 6, verse 16 tells us that he alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light that no man has seen or can see to him be eternal and honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, he is strong over death. You know, it takes a really powerful being to have strength over death and over the resurrection. The root of our strength in verse 10 comes from the might of the Lord himself. Verse 11, the sufficiency for living comes from God's resources. Look at verse 11. Here is the next imperative, next command. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Is to clothe or be clothed. The idea of sinking into a garment put on is the command, and it's an aorist middle imperative. What does that mean? Well, it means that we appropriate it. 
God has provided the clothing, the strength, we put it on. It's an imperative, a command, again, like sinking into a garment, a, a strong garment. And then he tells us why. So that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. It means uh, schemes or uh, the cunningness. He has plans. And when you think about it, it struck me this week that the devil, he has great knowledge. He has a, a, a whole horde of demons that do his work. And he knows exactly how to scheme to destroy my life and destroy your life as an individual and to destroy this church. And when we think about what the Apostle Paul has taught us from the time be filled with the Holy Spirit, the home and the workplace, isn't that the place Satan is going to start destroying things? Is in the very building block of our society is in the marriage and parenting in the home. And we see that all the time in the news, the destruction of the family. And so be aware of that. And here he's going to equip us to stand up to that. There is reality to this opposition. Some of it is more blatant than others. Uh, J.I. Packer in Knowing God wrote these words, opposition is a fact. The Christian who is not conscious of being opposed had better watch himself or herself, for they are in danger. Opposition is the reality. People oppose us. Remember Martin Luther in that mighty fortress is our God. Uh, the lyrics to that song we sing from time to time come out of Psalm 46. And Martin Luther wrote these uh, lyrics in that song, for still our ancient foe, referring to Satan, doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. That is sobering words Martin Luther left for us. So the root of our strength comes from the might of the Lord, not from our own skill, not from our own uh, resources, but from God himself. When we depend on anything else, whether it's our money, our resources, our power here on earth, we are sorely misguided. Only the strength comes from the might of the Lord. In verse 12, uh, not only do we see the root of our strength, we see the reality of our struggle, the reality of our struggle. And first of all, our real struggle is not with physical forces. Look at verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. As I look at social media and read different blogs and things, uh, I, I think many evangelical Christians are misguided on this because they think if we can just get the right people in the Supreme Court or the right political party in office or the right president or the right senator, that, wow, everything, it'll be heaven on earth. Uh, and they want to get out what they consider to be the flesh and blood enemies of us. But don't confuse prisoners of war with the enemy. Don't confuse the prisoners of war with the enemy. Sometimes in the heat of battle, we lose our perspective on who the real enemy is. In this verse, it reminds us that our struggle isn't against sinful people, but it is against an evil system and supernatural forces that influence the attitudes and actions of the system. In his assault on the kingdom of God, Satan has assembled a highly organized army of fallen angels. Paul categorized, categorized them as rulers, powers, world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness, wickedness in the heavenly places. This isn't a detailed description of the hierarchy of demons, but it is simply a general indication of their power and sophistication. High-ranking demons, world forces of demons, or infiltrate uh, political forces, systems around the world, attempting 
uh, to direct human leaders to oppose God's plan. In fact, in Daniel chapter 10, we see an example of this, a demon called the prince of the kingdom of Persia who withstood God's angelic messenger to Daniel until Michael the archangel came to his rescue. There's a spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places, demons involved in the most vile and perverted kind of sins, gross immorality, occultic practices, Satan worship, and the like. You know, those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ are unwitting prisoners of this war and captured and immobilized by an enemy and accomplished and mobilized to accomplish his purposes. And, and tragically, when all is said and done, Satan will abandon them and they will be relegated to an eternal hell. And that should make us weep in that. You probably know uh, unbelievers who enjoy ridiculing your faith and your lifestyle, and they make it difficult for you, whether it's at school or at the workplace, your neighborhood, perhaps even in your own family. Uh, And we know it is very difficult to take, but you need to be patient and don't become embittered toward them. Ask God to make you an instrument of his love and reach out to them to remove the spiritual blindness from them that they can see beyond Satan's lies and recognize their need of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you and exhort you, perhaps there's that one person in your life that you know is being used as a tool of Satan, that you would pray for them, that uh, you would pray that they would break through, God would break through Satan's deception in that person's life. So our struggle is not with physical forces, no matter what it appears like on the surface. The second part of verse 12, our real struggle is with spiritual powers. And again, in verse 12, it reads that for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Satan, the illusionist, he's not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. Therefore, he is not even close to being compared to God Almighty. But remember, he has a lot of experience, thousands of years. James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober of spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. 2 Corinthians 2.11, in order that no advantage be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes or his cunning. Acts 20.31, therefore, be on the alert. Occurs in the invisible reality of the heavenlies. The reality of our enemy, first of all, he is cunning or he has strategies, tactical shrewdness, and ingenious deception. Our enemy is powerful. All these titles portray an atmosphere of power, and our enemy is wicked, spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. You know, the Satan's tactics are uh, of intimidation and insinuation, and uh, he plays the bully and the beguiler as an angel of light. He is a force and a fraud, and his chief offensive is against the saints, against God's people. Uh, one thing I've noticed as I've studied Scripture, and uh, if you go to uh, study theology, if you go to an institution to learn theology, they will probably spend a whole semester in one course on angelology and demonology. 
And as I look at that, and as at least at this point in my life, if I, as I've looked at it, I've recognized that God always speaks specifically, but Satan always speaks unspecifically. He speaks in, in riddles and wonders. And, and uh, so it's always a measurement. Does God speak specifically on an issue, on, an, uh, on something? When I was little, uh, we, I grew up in Denver, and uh, my parents would take us to the Denver Zoo. And when I was a child, and uh, I could hear from a long ways away the lion. There was a big black-maned lion, male and some females, in the lion pit. And I, we could hear them from blocks away. My dad said they were just coughing, but it sounded like they were about ready to eat me. And uh, so we would go over, and I first saw these lions, and I was frightened to death when I saw them out there. Uh, that was because I was focusing on the beast, and I was not focusing on the cage that surrounded it. And I learned that lesson. A believer must focus on the resources that we have against the enemy of our souls. And so the resource for our stand is found in verse 13, in which we will expand upon in the coming weeks. In verse 13, it tells us, therefore, in other words, in light of what I've just taught you, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day having done everything to stand firm, to stand firm. The reason we are to take up God's resources, we are to take it up. Again, this is another command. This is an imperative verb, aorist active imperative verb. Uh, I was reading that uh, one of every 400,000 babies that are born each year have a uh, disability called severe combined immunodeficiency disease, or SCID a disease which leaves the child without defenses in its body chemistry to fight from the infection of germs. And it const they constantly attack his body. A Christian who is not protected by the armor of God is defenseless against the disease of sin of the world and of Satan. We need to appropriate the armor which the Apostle Paul will give to us in weeks ahead. Also as a child, I can remember going to the Denver Museum. My dad was good at taking us to museums and listening to opera, and to this day, I'm still crippled by opera, you know. I, I, I go into anaphylactic shock because we had to listen to it in the car. But uh, I remember going to the Denver Museum, and my favorite display, they had a full-size, full suit of medieval armor, uh, of, uh, of, of, of this armor there. And I marveled at its gleaming finish and how the pieces were designed and I would study that and how the, each piece was designed to protect a certain part of the body. And I went home, and I was going to build myself a suit of armor. And so I took cardboard boxes and painted them silver and made a suit of armor. And then my neighborhood friends and I would reenact uh, the Knights of the Round Table. But I soon found out that my armor was no protection from the, card or the, the wooden swords that my friends had, you know, and... So the lesson for me is, is that we as believers can adopt armor of our own making, such as our standing in life, our country, financial prosperity, skills, talents. But when the onslaught of the enemy comes, none of our self-made cardboard armor is going to protect us. We need God's armor, what he is providing us. And we're into verse 13. We have the purpose. Why would we want to take up these resources? In verse 13, he says, uh, for, <clears throat> excuse me, therefore take up the full armor of God so that, that's the purpose statement, it tells us the purpose, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. You've probably noticed the metaphor the Apostle Paul has used up until this point about life, about walking, 
uh, walk in unity, you know, walk in holiness, all of this metaphor of walking, living out the lifestyle. But here he changes the metaphor to stand firm, which we'll expand upon in weeks to come. If you want a wonderful experience, take your uh, New Testament or use a concordance to use up, to look up those two little words, but God, beauty, God, but God, and see how many times human resources have been brought to an utter end despite, and, and the despair has gripped the heart and pessimism and gloom has settled upon people and there's nothing that can be done. And see how the Spirit of God writes in those letters, but God, and the whole, ch- the whole scenario changes because our all-powerful God is involved in this world that he has. So we are to appropriate God's strength, convert, covering ourselves with his resources because there is a spiritual battle raging. We must stand firm and resist the evil that comes in many different forms and fashions. When we lived in Whitefish, I, many of you know I worked for a logging company and we built my job was to build uh, roads, logging roads, forest road construction. And one, one job, one summer, every uh, morning when we drove up to the job site, there was a meadow. And in that meadow were five bull moose. I'd never seen anything like that before or after. But five bull moose with wonderful antlers. It was just beautiful uh, to see them out there. But I was uh, reading about the bull moose. And there's a principle that we need to learn from the bull moose. And this is it. The males of the species, uh, every fall, during fall breeding season, they battle for dominance. And they literally go head-to-head with their antlers colliding and crushing together. And often the antlers, uh, are their only weapon, really, are often broken. And that ensures defeat. Uh, the heftiest moose with the largest and strongest antlers uh, triumphs over the weaker one. And wildlife biologists tell us that the battles that are fought in the fall are really won during the summer months when the moose eat continually. The one that consumes the best diet for growing antlers and gaining weight will be the heavyweight in the fight. Those who eat inadequately sport weaker antlers and less bulk. There is a lesson for you and I here. Spiritual battles await. Satan will choose a season to attack Will we be victorious in Christ or will we fall? Much depends on what we do now before those battles begin. The bull moose principle is that enduring faith, strength, and wisdom for trials are best developed before they're needed. And, of course, we feed on the word of God. We focus on that, depend on the Holy Spirit's guidance, protection, and what he has blessed us with this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Sometimes life seems out of control. We live in a culture that seems evil. And, uh, Lord, keep our eyes fixed upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. And, Lord, we repent of trusting in and depending upon any source of strength apart from you. We await your strength and your deliverance. Thank you for your blessings, for your transcendent character. You are inconceivable, invisible, incomprehensible, existing forever and yet ever the same. You and your only begotten Son and your Holy Spirit. You brought us into being out of nothingness, and yet when we had fallen, you raised us up again. You have not ceased doing everything to lead us to heaven and to bestow upon us your future kingdom. Your grace is magnificent. For this, we thank you and your only begotten Son and the Holy Spirit for all the benefits which we know of and those which we are ignorant of, for those that are manifested to us and those that still lie concealed. 
And Heavenly Father, thank you for this sacrifice and that you are pleased uh, with doing what you have set out to do. And Lord, we thank you that you have a mighty army of archangels and myriads and myriads of angels, cherubim and seraphim and six-winged and many-eyed, borne aloft on their wings who sing and proclaim and cry out and chant the traditional hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are filled with your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. We praise you and thank you for this day. And now ask that you would use your word in each one of our lives, that this week as you give us our days, that you would transform us, continue that process, and that we would rely upon your strength, your goodness, and your grace. For it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen and amen.